easy. The answer to that is fix it anyway. And this was always our mantra regardless. Fix the problem anyway, even if it becomes a billing problem later, so be it. Worst case, write it off, but provide good customer service regardless. So ignoring that, our, our mantra was always fix the problem, we can solve the billing later. Welcome to Insights as a Service. Uh, I've just been told by Romain not to say which number episode this is because we've lost all track. But uh, I want to kick off uh, by just saying, uh, if you like what we're doing, subscribe. I never say that. I always should say that, uh, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, hit some sort of a, a follow or subscribe button. And we also uh, are big fans of lights because that helps all sorts of algorithms. Um, lastly, as I sit here with my knockoff um, Red Bull flying power thing from Aldi, uh, which I got like 48 of the other day for a bucket piece, a uh, good option. Uh, I just want to say thanks to the people who got in touch in the last week to say um, that they like what we're doing. I think it was following the Peter Kajawa episode particularly. Um, the, the few people that gave me a call, a couple on in-mails on LinkedIn, really appreciate it. It's, um, it's great validation and thank you for listening. So, okay, on to the show for today. Um, we're going to be talking all things uh, MSP valuations, M&A landscapes, uh, MSP pricing plans, and the way they vary across the market, uh, and the way that pricing methodologies have evolved. And to help me get through all of that, I've got Ryan Spillane, also known, of course, as Fuzzy, uh, the CEO of 360 Consulting. Ryan, good day to you. Morning. Thank you. And uh, good to be here. And we've got, what, five minutes? So I'm sure we can get through all of those topics in five minutes. <laughs> yes. After, after that very lengthy lead in, uh, <laughs> with the little time we have left, we'll race through what we can. Um, all right. Look, so so you're, I mean, so many people, particularly in the Australian and New Zealand uh, MSP space, know who you are. If I if I rattle off your, your LinkedIn sort of bio, you know, the M&A guy, IT advisory and coaching, mentoring, strategic connector, M&A consulting, investor, what do you want people to know about you and and where you've come from and what your current interests are? Okay, well, we could be here all day just for that. Um, but yeah, look, short ver- short version of that. Uh, been in business thirty one years or thirty yeah thirty one years would be this year, uh, which is kind of scary. Um, ran an MSP for twenty five years. Uh, sold that two years ago. Did a, a year of integration, and then exited that at the start of twenty twenty two. So we're now what are we May twenty twenty three for this recording, just for for context. So yes, ran an MSP in the Australian market. We hit fifty nine people. Uh, doing just shy of 13 middle rev um, and a pretty healthy uh, bottom line and then exited into a big roll-up that uh, is still out there now with uh, probably about 400 people in the company. So uh, okay. a very big thing. But look, I do a lot of other things. I've got, uh, a, again, uh, build a, a bit of commercial property portfolio. I help uh, involved in quite a few like startups and products for the MSP industry through some angel investing and whatnot. But realistically, I'm I'm truly known for the managed services space and and merger acquisitions quite heavily. But just even just profitability of managed service providers, um, helping give back to the industry through not for profit associations and whatnot. So love the industry. That's why when I sold the business, I didn't really want to leave the industry, and that's where 360 has come in. It was a company that we actually acquired back in 2018, took all the uh, managed services clients out into the MSP we had then, and then thought it was a great name, could be used for almost anything. And it's like, no, we got to flick that into a, a converted or pivoted uh, is probably the better terms over into a consulting business that can be uh, used to consult back to the industry. Okay. And that's where and- it kind of leads us to where we are now. Right. And and under that 360 brand, I've seen you um, chair a number of M&A panels at a few different industry events, but I've also seen you be pretty active on on the old LinkedIn there. And 
one of the things that you're doing, and maybe what we will start with, is um, the current work you're doing uh, around the um, Australia New Zealand MSP pricing plans comparison report. Can you tell me a little bit about that project and, and what its aims are? Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, uh, the only way in most managed service providers or TSPs, technology service providers, as the, as the name is slowly changing over to nowadays, how do you know how your pricing actually compares to the competition? The only way is generally a, a client or a prospect giving you uh, an invoice from a competitor um, or you lose uh, lose some work or don't win a tender and someone actually gives you some feedback, which is rare, um, or going to events and just getting uh, someone throws out a, oh, we're charging $300 a user and you've got no idea what's included or what's not included or anything like that. So it's really hard to actually know what your pricing model looks like compared to the, the market you're in, be it a regional market, a city market or a metro or whether you're in New Zealand or Australia or again, I've got people actually putting data in from South Africa, Ireland, England and oh, the US as well uh, just through contacts that have said, hey, can we jump in and, and, and find out some info as well even though the focus for me is in the Australian and New Zealand market. But it came out of, uh, again, I, I've done a lot of consulting in this space for, for years as well on top of owning the MSP and uh, it was a client actually in South Australia. It's like they, they uh, have come up with their pricing plans before I was engaged. And I just said to them, guys, this is just far too cheap. It's just you're, you're underselling yourself badly. And I know, I know that. I know that in my heart. I know that in my gut. But I wanted quantifiable evidence to, to back that up. Like most people would just, whatever I say would go. But it's, and, they, and they would be as well, to be clear. But I just want to know. I, I want some data to backfill this. And then another customer in Queensland where I think their pricing is right, but I think they're actually including too much in their in their high-end planet, $200 a user, they're including a sock. And it's like, I think you can probably pull that out, increase your margin up a little bit, make, make some more profit, um, and still provide a great service to the client. So I started building this out in Excel and started to, of all the plans that I know, of all the plans I've consulted on in the last 12 months and, and our old plans, all those types of things. And then it's like, no, there's got to be a better way. Because because every single person um, has a different way of quoting it. And unless they send you a quote and how they made up the plan, it's really hard to compare. Um, so a perfect example is we hear of people in the US that sell $300 uh, per month plans per user. And then someone in Australia might be selling it for 65 The cheapest I've seen so far come through a 65 So how do you compare those? So I built out a Microsoft form. I'd never used one before. So yes, built that out. And then uh, that probably had about 40 questions in it. Then I've kept adding. I think we're at about 60 questions in there now. So it asks you, do you include unlimited remote support? Do you, is it limited? Um, is it on-site included or unlimited? Um, or it's excluded, those types of pieces? Uh, do you include antivirus or an MDR, an EDR? Uh, do you have a SOC? Do you have password management, two-factor? All of these types of questions come in. We don't go into what the products are uh, uh, that people are using. It's more just what's included in each plan so we can, can truly kind of compare what your what plan about, looks um, like to someone else. What about the things like, um, say, SLAs around um, response times or time to answer? Are things like that factored in? <laughs> Yeah, we definitely have. We've got, a, I think there's six or, seven, six or seven different options in there. And okay. it's actually quite funny. It's the, the most selected one so far. And we've only got probably about 80 responses so far. And I'd love to see about 250 responses into it. And that's not companies because each company might have three support plans or mm -hmm. they might have three support offerings and then two security offerings. So you need to run a security offering separately if, if you do bill it separately. So I can then identify whether what is support, what is cyber, 
cover those types of pieces. But yeah, no, it's it's quite funny in there. But the the most uh, used one at the moment is a guaranteed response time, rather than uh, in there is also it's uh, from memory I think it's guaranteed no SLA uh, priority support one two four or eight hour the different response times. But yes, guaranteed uh, guaranteed response is the uh, is the most selected. Which does that mean that they're not actually putting a two hour SLA on things, or mm. is it is it a case and it could be? And this is why I, I actually define the question as what is your priority three type ticket? Because a P1, a lot of people might have a 15-minute or a 30-minute response time on a priority one or a total system down environment versus what is your normal ticket that goes in? Let's say it's a priority three. So that's how I've, I've asked the question of what's a P3 rather than, again, as I said, people have a matrix of what, uh, of what their support response times are and SLA times are based on the severity. Okay. So yeah. um, I'll come back to the, the pricing in a sec, but just because we want um, – It'd be great for more MSPs to contribute to this 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 data bank. Um, what do they get in return? What can we sell uh, to them as the reason why they should get involved in this project? Well, we can. Well, at the moment, we're not selling anything. To be clear, we're actually doing oh, sorry, this. Sorry, I pitched that badly. No, 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 uh, I, I know. I know. It, actually, it actually worked well, so that's fine. Nice. <laughs> so nice no, setup. we're actually. That's right. We're not actually selling anything. Like to so say, if you put your data in, we will actually give you a call um, or an email back, whichever way you want, or a team's call and talk you through your plans and how it works. So right now, we're actually, it's not income generating at all. It is purely just getting enough data or a lot of, as much data as we can get to help justify and talk through like, okay, what's the Brisbane market look versus Sydney or Melbourne? It's any of the clients we're consulting with when you can say to them, hey, we need to increase your, uh, increase your price by 10% or 15%. We've got some data behind it. Or, Mr. Customer, you're underbilling by 25 or 50 or 100%. Uh, yes, you might. Don't be, uh, what's the same? Don't be worried about putting a 20% increase when your peers are double your price, something like that. So, okay. initially, this is what we're looking at. In the future, we're considering like do next year or in, pre in subsequent years. Like This was meant to be a one-off thing, but a lot of people are asking, are we going to turn this into a report? Um, a few uh, a few DISTs and, uh, and MSP vendors have actually said it'd be really good data to know. So, we may end up turning it into something in the future, but look, right now, no, the focus is just get, a, get enough data in and feedback that information to the people that uh, – put the data in as and for as i said for us we just get the underlying data that uh, tells us and any of our consulting we do with our clients that we've got some data to justify what we're saying yeah cool and i assume it's all anonymized uh, once they sort of Definitely. go back out yeah correct yes okay. no, no nothing gets shared we're the only ones that know what the the plan and which company it was but outside of that no it's it's all rolled up we'll give uh, data on kind of pricing in your city your state and even country so that's okay. at the most it'll ever be. But if someone's in a specific regional state, oh sorry, a regional town or something like that, we will talk about major regional or minor regional locations. So that will then, so for example, if you're talking Coffs Harbour, Sunshine Coast, Cairns, um, Albury, um, Caratha, those types of things. Like we're not going to say, okay, the price in Caratha is this because there might only be two people in there and that's not going to work. But we'll say, okay, if you're outside of 500 kilometers or outside of a major city, this is what the pricing would look like. So there's okay. enough, not, enough, enough anonymity in the data. And so of the data set you've got to date, what sort of variation between those same sort of centers, whether it's, you know, say Auckland and uh, Wellington or Sydney and Melbourne, uh, or those sort of regional um, centres, uh, how wide is the variation of that per head? 
Billy? Yeah, look, it's it, I haven't done a huge amount of analysis yet because I'm trying to get uh, more people in, and the focus at the moment is getting the data in. But there is some very wide numbers in there from, again, as I said, the cheapest is $65 a user um, and the dearest are like $250. Dollars a user, so and that's mm. and that's fine. That's that that's valid as well. It's what's included in it. What is the underlying piece in it? And that's the, the interesting part. Of, uh, like if we talk about even the US market for a second, there's people that talk about okay, well you should be able to sell sell your support at three hundred dollars a user. Well, that's probably not wrong, but at a headline that seems very expensive. But it's yeah, what's included in it. To who? To who? That's and, right. Yeah, what's included? Yeah. And what's included? Because that could be the same as, like, for example, our old support plan that included uh, flat rate support on site and remote uh, was about one hundred and thirty. Was, was, this price was one hundred and fifty, depending on the size you were, and that was per user per month. Then we had Office three hundred and sixty-five on top. Then we had your your two-factor on top. We had your cyber on top. We then had support for the cyber on top. If you actually look at that, that's probably two hundred and fifty, two hundred and seventy dollars anyway per user that it adds up to. So it's probably the same thing. It's just Really, what's included and what's not? It's it's what's a headline number versus what's a kind of a real answer, versus again at the smaller end we've got uh, and the perfect example of this was the the customer that we were one of the customers we were looking at for this was that yeah their price was just over a hundred dollars user but that included an Office three six five SKU, and so realistically the the support like the support component of that, if you took the at least the office out, ignoring some of the, the RMM agents, the antivirus agents, all of those other pieces out, they were really only billing like $75 or $70 a user, which is far too low. So, yes, some people are okay. making money at those prices. Um, I don't know. They wouldn't be making much money. Okay. And and so when you think about how uh, an MSP can make uh, uh, you know, bank, basically, by, by having a pretty solid um, pricing structure. I mean, one of the obvious ways, not obvious necessarily, but certainly more prevalent ways would be by picking a specific vertical or market segment and getting a, a just an absolute shit ton of social proof behind you as to how excellent you are at dealing with, I don't know, allied health, for example. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, every allied health major firm is, has a testimonial on your website and you know, all of your your messaging from start to finish relates back to that key market, and therefore anyone else, uh, anyone in that market would be mad not to choose you. And because of that brand recognition, <laughs> you have this price point. And uh, when at the end of the day, a lot of the services, or perhaps there's some some proprietary software in that market segment that you just dominate, you you know it inside yep. out. So so I mean that's 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 sort of one option, I suppose, is is niching down and just being an absolute subject matter expert to create a value premium. Outside of that, are you seeing you know pretty smart ways of going about getting out of that race to the bottom or justifying a, a significant you know margin on the on the the per user hit? There's three or four responses to that question. <laughs> to be honest, Brandon. Okay. If we it. look at okay, if we if we look at the um, uh, the niching or the vertical uh, and whatnot, it's a great idea. However, it does it's and it's quite funny. Australia is different. Like in the US, you can have people that just do nothing but health or nothing but just lawyers or accountants or whatnot. The market's big enough, and Australia uh, is is hesitant on that. And same with New Zealand. Like most MSPs start out as looking after every industry out there. They go horizontal rather than vertical. They then realize, and we did this, we we're guilty of this after like 20 years in, as an MSP, that, hey, we're doing a lot in construction, a lot in medical, and a lot in finance. So at accountants, financial planners, anything relating to that. So, And then we had a little bit in retail and manufacturing. But we actually realized that we have kind of three verticals or such where we might have five or six customers in each. So we then changed our marketing to start talking to those verticals more and more and started to win a bit more business in there. 
So that, that kind of works. And I say that's how most managed service providers and TSPs actually do it, is that, yes, they go out, take up a bunch of clients over many years and then realize, oh, hang on, we're, we're doing quite a bit in this particular field. Maybe we should look at that. I think it'd be very hard to start an MSP or a TSP in Australia and New Zealand focusing on one vertical only. I think you'd be very small for a very long time. And I do know people that niche in healthcare or dental or whatnot. And a lot of times they, they're... They're very good at what they do, to be clear, and they provide better service and better support to the the software apps that they that their clientele use than what the actual software providers do themselves because they get to know it, they understand it well, they know how to make it sing and dance. So that's a, a really good thing for them. But a lot of times you're also limited in growth by there's only so many people in that market. And sometimes people don't want to be with the same same place. They don't want to follow the same the same group of people. They want to go a different way. So, uh, so from that perspective, you can your growth can be limited. Uh, likewise, there's a there's risk with that as well, as if one of the the software, one of the companies you provide support to, as in the vendor side of that that you provide to the end customers, decide that they want to release a new product or stop a product or sell a product. At that point in time, your client base could disappear pretty quickly because the, their needs may change. So you're you're very tied to to that vertical, which is by design, but tied probably to a couple of vendors as well in that vertical. A great example of that, right, would be something like real estate, where if there's a downturn in property prices at the end of a, a boom period, and you've thrown all your eggs in that basket, you you're going to go down with the ship, kind of thing. So yeah, it's a good point. Resi real estate, yes, I'd agree with that. Commercial, it's funny actually. Side little comment. Uh, what's his name? It's funny with the we did have a number of real estates over the years, and it's all about appearance. Sorry, guys, I'll I'll say it. I'll say these to the, pe- the real estate people's faces uh, every day of the week. It's all about the the bling, the suit, the watch, the the car that's leased by the uh, by the bank or by the leasing office. Yeah. They don't own any of it ninety percent of the time. It's all about appearance. Where yeah. it's funny if it's commercial real estate. Those guys don't care what they drive. Um, they, they actually just, yeah, they make bank differently. The guys up the end of the corridor doing commercial are now building here. They're, uh, they look yep. very different than the Ray White across the road from my house. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with right. you. Yeah, yeah, very different. Sorry, random random side topic. But yes, it's, yeah. a, perfect, it's a perfect example. So look, I think... Uh, the, if you had a couple of niches, I think that kind of works. And yes, having the testimonials, having the the, the case studies, uh, running events that talk to other other people in that same industry, so health and, and whatnot would be a perfect example, or architects, whatnot. Again, we're we're in one of these very interesting industries where most IT companies will share 85, 90% of what they do. There's some out there that just don't share anything, and that's fine. But it's perfect example is we had like five or six IT companies in our old uh, complex where where our old company was based. And you'd say they're all competition, but we came across one or two of them probably twice in 10 years. Like we would go out to have lunch with them and talk about clients. We'd talk about this and the other because we didn't have to fear each other. We're mature enough to realize there's enough clients out there. We're all doing something slightly different. We're not uh, not duplicates of each other. So yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And and so when we come back to I guess how you you get that pricing, how you justify that higher price point than the others, other than niching down, any any other ideas that you throw out there at, at a high level? 
Look, there's definitely products set. What what products are you using? Um, again, service response times. Are you doing something different? Are you customer reporting? Uh, again, QBRs, which I think QBRs are we could have a, a totally different conversation, a separate uh, podcast about uh, or podcast about QBRs because I think most people look at it as a sales tactic or sales thing. It's like no, a true QBR is about the customer's business, not about your business. You should be like the setting like compliance data how how quick you responded to all these tickets and all of that that should be a report that goes through but it's not that's not a qbr that's a, an account management meeting or whatnot anyway we won't get started on that one but yes uh, kind of yeah. it's right uh, there's other things like we we used to provide the telco services we we're a wholesale provider so we had our own data networks we provided voice services we did so many things it was actually quite funny speaking to some of the clients after we sold um, who then wanted to move to other other companies they had to they interviewed a number of IT companies and in the end have to often pick two companies to replace what we did because we used to do so many things for our clients it made us very sticky which was great it meant our reoccurring revenues were great which increased our valuations which we'll come to later in the conversation but yeah just it worked really well but I can tell you, it was also hard trying to innovate, trying to evolve when you're doing so many different parts of a business. Like it's not just support, your products, projects, your cloud business, your private like gear and private data centers and private cloud, your your data network, your offsite backup, your voice platforms. It's yeah, it, it got quite uh, quite busy and quite heavy a lot with the amount of the amount of uh, development you'd have to do to to keep yourself at the front edge as such. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that, and that so, becomes a differentiator. Yeah. So with pricing models though themselves, so the, the per head is the, the, the stock standard, the industry standard. Are you seeing any variation or, or, or innovation in the, the way services? Yeah, charged? definitely. So as you say, per head, I think that's the what we've been doing for the last three to five years. But if you go back five to 10 years or 15 years, it was all per device. We used to charge how many computers and how many servers did you have? And then uh, for those that were possibly smarter or or had wanted a, a lot more pain in, in doing invoicing every month, there was how many switches, how many wireless access points, how many printers, how many how many this, that, the other did you have? And they would actually list those out onto onto the agreement and bill per device. And it was literally Every device got charged. If it wasn't it wasn't covered on there, it didn't get supported. Mm. Then we decided that's really darn complex, and it's really hard to manage all of those other devices, such as switches and and printers or whatnot, because you don't have an RMM agent or an easy way to identify whether a new one came on or one got removed each month. So we so, then so, decided, so, okay, so, let's. It's a great way to burn bridges too. If someone rings you up and says, uh, I, I can't do my job, this thing's broken. You're like, I'm sorry, the device actually isn't covered by existing contracting. I need you to go figure that out somehow. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, carry on. The answer to that is fix it anyway. And this yes. was always our mantra regardless. Fix yeah. the problem anyway, even if it becomes a billing problem later, so be it. Worst case, write it off, but provide good customer service regardless. So ignoring yeah, that, our, our mantra was always fix the problem, we can solve the billing later. So, yeah, so we, everyone then decided, no, we, let's, let's support the user. We do support users or carbon-based life forms or whatever, whatever humans, whatever you want to call them. Uh, yes, that's how we provide support. So let's start billing on a user basis. And that works really well, I'd say, for the last probably five, eight years or something like that. I would say for the last year, I think there's more and more challenges with it. And I don't there's I don't think everyone's realized some of those challenges. But the biggest ones are all of your cyber, all of your antivirus, all of your product set that you actually buy as an MSP or as a TSP to 
build your service and put your solution set to your client is often built is pretty much or 90% of it's built on a per user basis. Your backup is per device or per mailbox, um, which could include shared mailboxes or whatnot. Um, your RMM agents, all of those things are per device. Uh, there are a few things that are per user, but again, 85, 90% of it is actually on a per device basis. So, and then, okay, how many devices do you include per user? Well, our support plans used to include three users, oh, sorry, three devices per person or per user. But then that's really hard to count because you can't then use automation because if Brendan has a laptop, a PC, an iPad, a phone, uh, and everything else you have nowadays, that's you're well past three devices. How do you count those devices? If you need to put MDM or mobile device management on those devices, that starts costing quite a bit. And it was an averages game, and that's what we did, and it worked for a while. Where I think the next version of those plans are what I'm calling the hybrid plans nowadays and been doing work with quite a few you clients about this is both actually you actually bill for both devices and users so i think this is i say msp1 as such if we want to talk about numbers msp1 was building by devices msp2 is now building by users and i think kind of msp3 from a billing methodology side is actually a hybrid plan customers understand and they think people think oh it's too hard for customers to understand and i don't think it is they can easily tell you how many devices they've got because there's how many computers and that works easy for you because you can link your your psa your auto task your connectwise manage your halo psa synchro or whatever flavor you're using service now etc you can link any of those products um, to for billing purposes so if you get a new bill from a client or from it sorry from a vendor that has an extra three licenses for someone you can automatically connect that to your billing platform to bill for it then it's easy to tell how many users they have from active directory azure active directory those types of things so you can then link a group in azure ad to to your billing line item for the amount of users you have so you can almost automate most of your billing because that's the biggest problem in a lot of cases um, and i'm talking about this later this month as well is the the billing side of this is a it can be a nightmare nowadays it can take days of someone uh, reconciling or looking at how many devices how many users what all the vendor bills are and then how much you're billing uh, to your customer and they don't care about it they just want to know what the bill is well that's it and i think that's where companies like cloud oliver coming in right and really trying to into end solve that whole just, just right. simplify it but for me yeah. you know if, if i was the end user in that situation what i'd be looking for is a almost a, a, a graphically illustrative way of just eyeballing how are my charges generated? Like, okay, show me the yep. people, the names, the devices, the dollar signs. Is there, is that being done well in in, in the industry? That that the we did it actually... for, we've done it for in the past. So we actually had what I'd called good customer reporting, which did list how many users, how many devices. Um, we were pulling usernames uh, for a long time off mailboxes and then uh, PC names and whatnot. Um, and then uh, there was a, a an update to one bit of software that we were using that it anymore but sync 365 is a perfect example now like if we go back three years ago we had the problem nowadays it's been solved by numbers of so numbers of software out there that will pull that down and yes it does mean your invoice to a client could be three five ten pages 20 pages long but it's a pdf how many of them are really printing that anymore they're not most times it's not really a paper issue you're not you're just right you're not you're not posting it out with a postage stamp and whatnot so there's nothing wrong with having the data there and i don't see i don't know why people want to hide that from their clients it's it's it, the data is whatever it is if they ask you at any point in time how many i've got 136 user mailboxes oh for which users are they 
you need to go and produce that for them at any point in time anyway. They have to. You're supplying the service to them. So why not put it on the invoice every single month and automate it so it's on there? And then that also means, and that was a good way for us to actually put some of the some of the onus and some of the liability and some of the, the work back on the client because they're getting an invoice every single month of all of the users that have mailboxes. If Fred left three months ago, then they should have told us that. Or the chances are they did tell us and we've now secured it, but they've wanted to keep Fred's mailbox for three months. You can't yeah. then go back a year later. Oh, hang on. Fred left nine months ago. Why have you been billing us for this? And then they want a credit for nine months when you've been paying Microsoft every month for that. Kind of can't get a credit back from Microsoft. But if you have it on your invoice every single month, then hang on. At what point is this on me versus what's, when's this actually yeah. on some responsibility on from the customer's perspective? And you touched on QBRs before. That's the kind of thing, in my view, that should be touched on the QBRs. Hey, let's just have a quick run through here. I say, you know, sure. who, who's still in the company? What, what movements have you had in and out? And then uh, are the current per user billing models correct and accurate? Sure. So, yeah, good example. Hey, um, as I said, uh, that whole that that kind of hybrid piece now I think works well because again, as I said, you can tie that to your agreements within your within your PSA and automate more of your billing, and that would make mm. a big difference. Well, I think um, if I go all big picture on it and, and, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on AI because everyone's got to talk about AI at the moment at some point, <laughs> but you know, we've got an aging population, um, less people contributing to productivity in the workforce over the next couple of decades, at least. Um, we're talking about people doing more, um, you know, through the use of technology. So you've got to have a billing model that scales in both directions because more and more of your clients will have less heads and probably more devices and generating more revenue because we've got to. Uh, yep. So, yeah, I think your model speaks to that really well. Well, to give you a perfect example, uh, one of the uh, one of the members in Evolve, one of the uh, like I, I facilitate two Evolve peer groups, and one of the members actually said they've got a client, and this was only last week, so it's perfect timing. They have a client that for nine months of the year, they're about 35, 35 computers, 35 staff, uh, or 35 staff, I should say. But three months of the year, because they're very uh, seasonal, they're at 120 users. The computers there sit there all year. Um, so I said, well, this is a perfect example where a hybrid plan works because they weren't sure, do we just build for, and they've been doing it for a few years, but they do they just build just for those extra three months? Do they actually amortize and work out what the bill would be over a 12-month period with those three big months and then nine normal months and then just amortize that across all the other months? But then the customer will say, well, hang on, those other months, we're not, we're not doing as much work and our costs are a lot higher. So I said, this is where a hybrid plan perfectly comes in because every single month you could bill for the devices for those 120 computers that still sit there and they're not turned off for nine months permanently. They're, someone might go and log into one of them every now and again. They still need to have antivirus, still need to be patched. They still need to be secured. All of that still needs to happen on those devices. So why not build the devices out at that lower rate? Uh, so could, a device could be $50 and the support could be $150 type thing per user. Why not just have that all purely automated for you? And then three months of the year when the user count quadruples, then for those three months, you actually increase your just the, the labor component and the actual per users the, or the quantity of users you're billing for. And that aligns the profitability and the amount of work you're actually delivering in those months to the actual revenue as well, which makes reporting a lot easier. And if you're doing any sort of benchmarking or, or whatnot, it actually makes the data more accurate. So sorry, yeah. it's a perfect example no, of what you're saying. It's a good example. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's good to have yep. real world, uh, real world examples thrown in the mix rather than just you know me throwing up uh, hypotheticals. <laughs> All right, so um, you mentioned before that you your your MSP was was it self a telco, right? So um, 
what's your advice for MSPs, whether they should essentially um, wholesale telco services, whether building out their own network or just elements of it and, and, and putting mm-hmm. in tails or SIP chunks or whatever versus partner with a company that does virtually all that for them, but just provides a, a, a recurring revenue stream, which I guess just ring fences the, the churn risk more than probably anything. It was, is a bit of passive yeah. revenue there, but, but, but at what point you know, there's got to be a tipping point in terms of scale, I assume, and, and um, potentially the type of customer as well. So, so for you, what, what, what are the key factors that would determine which approach you took? I think it'd be really hard to quantify, but let's talk through it anyway. I think the hardest piece is again, what is the, how much, like, what's the sell through or what's the revenue, um, like how many sales, what type of sales, things like that, or how much voice data uh, or voice traffic and, and what the, the margin is and whatnot. The biggest piece nowadays is do you actually have the, the, the skill set to manage it? Like totally. it's easy to go and buy. It's easy to go and buy some routers. It's not hard to to go and buy a an SB, a set of SBCs or some voice gateways and and basically get some calls going through it. But the minute you've got to do legal intercept or the minute you've actually got an issue where your your SIP's not working or it's one way voice or you're having uh, codec problems and we're getting quite technical here. But once you once you have to get to a packet trap, do you does does your um, packet capture? Sorry, not packet trap. It's an old MSP product we used ten years ago. Uh, but yes, once you have to get to the to those, at what point do you have the skill set internally to have that? And that type of skill set costs money and, and decent money, to be honest with you. And you need generally more than one. One is where most small guys will start, but then they soon realize that person's sick, that person's on holidays. If something goes wrong, if that person leaves, they're, they're ready out there with their pants down like it's they've got a problem so you need two people like that and unless they're doing a lot of work like a lot of billable work they're really high high end expensive resources to keep keep around as such mm. so i think for nowadays i think the scale conversation is quite different i think in the past where realistically you could there wasn't a huge like there was there's a lot more margin years ago compared mm. what it is now but at the same token it's a lot easier that people like yourself and others have, have built really good portals, real good uh, systems. And let's be honest about it, with NBN, as an example, NBN Co. won't just let you wholesale directly from them unless you have enough client, enough potential connections and ready and keep putting enough connections through every month to justify being there. Otherwise, they'll turf you back out of their program and say you've got to go and use someone else or an aggregator. So realistically, if you go against your Optus, your APT, your Telstra Wholesale, all of those, yes, you can go and sell the retail versions of those. You can get some trailing commissions for some. For us, it was just uh, we started out that way. We were um, back in the days of PacNet or Pacific Internet. We we're PacNet's biggest partner. Uh, we put every connection on there as, as many as we could, and it worked really well. Um, and then they sold to Telstra, which they then reduced and removed the trailing commission components. And and what the the what really pushed us across the line, to be honest, was uh, we took a large client. Uh, with 220 connections to uh, to Packnet at the time, and they then decided that to win the business, they had to remove partner commissions, even though we were the ones that actually introduced them. That they were going to take us out of the deal. So that's we nice. then decided, and that and that was the piece then. And I've talked about it not not too publicly, but I've never hid, hidden it either. That was when we decided that no, we should actually build our own. So we then spoke to the client and said, "Would you actually in, uh, allow us to put one other offer on the table?" And they said yes, um, which ended up being our own, and we won it. So that that's, was the, that's that along with a few other clients was the impetus to, for us to build out our our own layer two and our own core. 
the lesson in but, that. Don't don't take your clients for for granted, telcos. Uh, <laughs> no, that's right. But, so but I would also, say I would say most days nowadays, uh, for most people nowadays, it's not worth building out. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of equipment and a lot of, especially with the the speed of data trunks nowadays. Like you get away with years ago, a single gig Ethernet on something could handle a couple hundred clients. Nowadays, mm-hmm. with one gig plus connections out to clients, no, even your ten gig head ends are not like what you put ten customers on it. You're yeah. looking twenty five or forty or hundred gig connections. That all costs a lot of money, and unless you're utilizing it and utilizing it well, the cost base is far too high. Let someone else do that well. Let someone else aggregate that and then have a good portal to you that you can actually uh, buy the services, build them to your customer, and they're responsive when something goes wrong. That's the yeah, best, best outcome nowadays. I think it's good advice and, and everything you've just said applies to standalone telcos too. There's a, there's a reason why there's there's a lot less new entrants nowadays that that skill set makes the um, the 100 gig port requirement if you're going to scale to, yep. to any decent sort of size and, and just the 120 odd poise for MBN isn't particularly helpful either. Um, no. And I won't hear a bad word said about them, uh, but no. uh, <clears throat> yes. Anyway, move on. Uh, all right. So let's talk about, should we jump into M&A, uh, I think you, did I make this up or did you have this down somewhere that you've been involved in around 31 uh, M&A activities or, or consultation or type things with different MSPs? More than that now, a lot more than that okay. actually. But yes, so let's let's put some uh, some context around around that number. Uh, so in Correct Solutions, we did 10 M&As for ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was to acquire into our own. Um, I've done three in other industries, so totally outside of the MSP and TSP space for my, myself. Mm-hmm. But while I was running Correct Solutions, I actually helped 31 other companies do any sort of M&A. So that was from doing evaluation for them to helping them, they're, they're buying one or that they've bought one and now how to integrate it or do it, here's an offer on the table. Do you think it's worthwhile? Yes or no. So it's, it's a very wide gamut of people we helped along the way. But since 360, yes, we've helped another uh, dozen or two, I'd say, quite easily. We, we're helping people actually go through the full transaction end-to-end nowadays, not just the just some advice from someone else that's had some experience in it. So that's probably okay. the, the difference there. So yes, had been involved in the landscape for quite some time, mostly on the M and the acquisition side. And then obviously now I've gone through the sale a couple of times. So it's uh, we've got experience from all angles. So I think you're well-placed then to answer a question, which you know I think we, we often... You're well placed to answer many questions, but that's not what I meant. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, uh, I think uh, we have a lot of talk in the industry around valuation methodologies. You know, uh, the rate of acquisition and, and, and mergers that we're going to see versus previous years, and the exit of cheap money, blah blah blah. But something that always intrigues me is just how I, time and time again, see synergies poorly attained. I see integrations really just drag, uh, whether it's cultural misalignments, technical debt, skeletons and closets, whatever. How do MSPs, yeah, totally. How do MSPs get better at this? Is it the due diligence piece? Is it that they're too keen, the FOMO? Is it is it the, the lack of willingness to seek help in the integration itself post-acquisition? What is going wrong? Um, yeah, yeah we've got, got the rest of the day for this recording. Yeah. Um, no, look, <laughs> it's, points, please. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's, all, it's all of the above in all seriousness. That's the hard bit. Yeah. Like it's, and look, we, we learned the hard way in a number of uh, things and uh, for what not to do and what to do and what worked and what didn't work and whatnot. So yeah, plenty of, plenty of experience from the university of hard knocks, I'd say. So yes, that's, that's how we learned a lot. Um, I think there's a, there's a mix. So I think it's, it's not what people do every day of the week. It's they, they're good at integrating like for one product for a client, for, that's all they're doing. It's a one-off. It's uh, they're 
good at supporting things. But how, like, if you look at an M- two MSPs coming together in a merger or an acquisition, either way, it doesn't matter in this case. Most MSPs have, they would think they have 25 or 30 systems that run their business. I challenge them, and it's something we've, we've done for a few years. It's most people actually have nearly like 70 to 100 systems that are actually involved in running their, running their business. Like, okay, they've got a practice management system that then connects to a accounting system. Those two don't talk natively together. There's another piece of software in between. Then if they want to do direct debits, if they want to do credit cards and things like that, that's often another bit of software. So if you think just even on the finance side alone, there's five systems involved in sending out an invoice to someone. So it's quite funny from that. So, and then if you think about it, every one of those systems has to be evaluated of whether it's required, how whether it's in use with the the person that's acquiring them, or the merge, or whichever system is going to survive, and then what's involved in transitioning that information, and then what is the what are the like the steps, the prerequisites, the requirements for each of those? That takes time. Like most, the funny part about it, or not really the funny part, the disappointing part about it. Let me say it that way, most most probably more appropriately, is. Everyone wants to do it. So there's been a lot of M&A FOMO for, for years. Um, and that's where a lot of people do it. And they learn badly that it doesn't work. And then it's like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. And this, that, and the other. And, and look, don't me wrong. There's certainly challenges and you've got to know what you're doing. Or you've got to have deep pockets to, to just deal with the problems. Most times, I, one of the first questions I ask you, anyone comes to me and wants to buy, is how much spare capacity does your management and exec team have? Because most people are pretty darn busy. Mm. And unless you have enough time to be able to focus on the acquisition, the integration, all of those pieces, and it takes time, the reality is your main business is going to suffer because you're not focusing on it anymore. So I often say to everyone, it takes a lot more brain cycles and a lot more uh, a lot more brain power involved in M&A than what you realize. And it's funny speaking to people six months down the track because they're, they've been talking to someone and haven't actually executed yet or getting close. And then you start seeing their sales or the revenue drop a little bit on their business. It's no longer no longer like going as quick or the curve flattens out a little bit or the bottom line. A lot of times the bottom line takes a bit of a nosedive um, because they're, they're not focused on driving and running the business that's, that's generally making them the money that's helping them do those acquisitions or these mergers. So, yeah, look, it's, it's do they have the time to do it? Uh, do they have some processes? Most times people don't, and it's not until you really get after five or six do you start putting processes. You, you say you put process in after the first one, uh, but it's not until you get two or three because you start learning from every single one of them. Oh, hang on, we didn't have that in the process or we didn't know about this. And that's where, again, people like myself or there's, there's probably a handful of people in this region that can help with this um, at best. So that does that we come with experience and that's why why we've got a job at the end of the day. But it comes down to a lot of people won't pay for it. They'll think, oh, hang on, what we cost uh, is too much. And look, there's they could say that. But if you look at how much time and effort you're going to put into this and how much money you're spending, then we're actually pretty darn cheap in the scheme of it. I think people need to stop thinking about cost and think about return. Um, and you don't oh, yeah, get these things wrong, right? And That's I think right. if you look at it like a house build, if you go under 30% over budget, even on a fixed cost contract, you're doing pretty well. Um, yep. <laughs> and the, the higher your leverage, the, to, to the, if you're leveraged to a very high degree because you're so desperate to make a deal work that you haven't got the room to invest in more people, uh, systems to to um, have timelines run over so that you don't maybe obtain those those savings that you thought you would within the, the yep. that particular time frame then you're really going to be in a pile of shit so uh yeah that's that's why i think your kind of services and and whoever else may may, may supply them if they're well, uh, 
identifying culture like how do you easily identify culture and look it's it's one of the hardest things you ever do but culture is the critical component and aligning culture you got two unaligned cultures or it's, uh, uh, what's his name two cultures that are polar opposite you're never going to get them t- together well the only way you'll get them together is half of the company or half of people are going to leave because they're not going to do the transition so if you can cost that in and you're happy with that, then you can still, there's still people out there acquiring and they don't care about some of those things because they can, they can put their or stamp their way of doing it across any business. They're big enough and they're just, they're almost vacuuming up smaller companies and it, it works. It, it, it is a, it is a viable model because they're basically arbitraging. They're buying at a, at a certain multiple and then when they exit, they can exit a, at a much bigger multiple. So it can work. The catch is the people that work there and the clients that go through that experience generally aren't happy. And then that's why people leave, and that's why there's issues. Uh, you've got to, you've actually got to price in a certain amount of attrition in every deal, just to, and then you you work that back. But yeah, as I said, the culture is the critical component. And then again, most times when you're talking to a merger or an acquisition, it's owner to owner, or it's a couple of the people in management with each other, and that's it. How often do you go and get time to sit in an office with the rest of the team or go out and see a client just as if you're part of the team rather than an external person? How do you actually get to experience that? And how? Do you, and then how does that, because you can't do it, how do you then quantify the, the culture other than yeah. what, the, what someone selling it to you says? It's okay. really, yeah. really difficult. <laughs> That's right. Very difficult. (laughs) There's your biggest problem. So, yeah. I I think another great, great um, thing, and sometimes, sure, this is taken into account, but I've been in plenty of M&A conversations where it hasn't been adequately considered, which is um, how do your price points align? Because if you've got very different price points and you're you're buying revenue and, uh, you know, you're going to have a complete mismatch between what you're charging your clients. Well, either you've got to increase one over time or you're going to start having setting expectations, you should decrease the other. and, And there's going to be some level of, of, of you know difficult discussions around that whole piece so um i think sometimes people don't dive enough into those numbers and, and see you know what what it's, range it's of tech plans. alignment it's how the rate alignment it's mm. yes you might have the same it's funny mr uh, uh, uh let's we're billing at 150 dollars a user or whatnot it's like okay but what's included or how much are you then billing for project service are oh, we built 225 dollars a user are oh, we only bill 130 because they're under an agreement well You've got a $90 an hour difference there. Uh, are the client's just going to accept that or how do you handle that? Or, again, depending on the practice management software or the PSA you're using, you can put that in there and it can handle it and then you just slowly align it. It's, but these things need to be planned. These things need to be, uh, again, as I said, just a, a good whole, a good serious plan put together and an integration schedule, an integration plan, an integration, everything. And, and they may not be your biggest problems. You could handle that $90 delta for, for a period of time. Yes, the catch is your own. If, if you're the acquiring company and you're selling it to 220 and they're selling it at 130, then your resources are probably costing more. So it's selling them out at 130 now. You may not actually be making anything, but you could actually make a conscious decision that that's okay for the time being because we have a plan and we have a, a, 12, a six month integration and we're going to solve that. But that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is getting systems aligned, getting all that first because that's where you can lose more money and, and more costs. So there's, that's okay if it's planned, but a lot of times it's not. And that's where I talked about tech stack. What, what tech stack do you use internally? What tech stack do you actually sell to your clients? There's two different stacks there. 
And if they're not aligned, if one uses WatchGuard versus Sophos, well, are you going to support both? Are you eventually going to use uh, only go to one? Or what happens if someone uses Sophos and then someone uses Palo Altos? Because you, at that yeah. point in time, you've got very different different requirements, different cost bases. And if you're selling a bunch of Palo into a bunch of clients here and a bunch of Sophos to clients here, chances are those customers are very different demographics, different maturities, different cost capability, different, uh, uh, yeah, different everything. So again, where's the alignment? You make a great point because, yeah, I mean, you don't want to have everyone certified in everything, every partner certification program. You can't. You don't get that. No. That's right. And you, and you don't get those economies of scale on, you know, volume discounts no. if you're spreading it. Yeah, it's all much, much more difficult. So look, I, I think <laughs> well, we're going to have that to- That feeds stop. into the perfect question of like, it's around profitability. If, you, if you're going to try, that's <laughs> what I said. It's a perfect segue because it's had like realistically trying to do everything doesn't equal profitability. Hmm. Yes, it might give you more revenue, but there you go. That's Absolutely. Right. It's one of my favorites. Yep. And um, I'm, a, I'm a broken record with it, but you're dead right. Every, every um, you know, financial metric that we have at Lightwire starts with GP. You know, you've, you've got to focus yep. on that as a starting point that you can work on your your cost below that. But I, I think... Um, and even we, better, gross margin dollars. Gross yeah, margin yeah. dollars makes the world turn. Without yeah. your gross margin dollars, you've got nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So let's say... Let, okay. Well, I was going to ask you a question about EBITDA, <laughs> but maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question is uh, not only uh, what, I guess, percentage of EBITDA potentially is a good benchmark to go against, because I think it was James Davis who said to me uh, from Pax8 who said that... Um, the average EBITDA across the MSP uh, market is 6%. So, A, let's fact check that five, if you can. 5.6, 5.8 globally. There you go. Okay. So, fact check yep. done. So call, pretty call good. Let's round it up. Call, yep. call it six. Yes, that's right. Okay, um, good. And it now, depends. Like, how, how can you say that? Because it's a, it's across everyone. But yep. it, it comes down to it's quite funny. Like, you can, you can have billion-dollar businesses, billion-dollar IT companies selling service and products making – 20 million or 30 million or 50 million dollars so look at, look at they're, they're making margins. nothing datacom's like one percent it's horrific yeah and you yeah. sometimes wonder why do all that revenue and have all that pain are you better off doubling your rates if your customers will take it and have half the clients and you're a lot less problems than half <laughs> that's it yeah do less yep. to earn more totally that's right um yep. But so I guess going back to the thing, your gross margin dollars, but or whatever. What for you? What are the critical, um, the metrics that matter, and the benchmarks that should be applied to those as a passing grade? Okay, so I would look. It's not easy to answer. It depends on the size. So if you're yep. if if you're one uh, under one million, uh, depends on again the viewership. But if let's say if you're under a million dollars worth of revenue, then realistically a lot of times you're you're just making salary uh, for an owner, and that's about it. So you're probably total combined out like profitability at that point in time. Your accountants tell you to not make any money, um, use spend all the profit, and you've got you're probably paying yourself seventy or eighty grand a year. So it's nothing. Let's be say, honest. So um, that, let's let's say. Fair. Uh, let's say twenty odd staff on average. A lot of our partners have that. Let's say five to ten mil. You reckon that's sort of yeah. So I'd, yeah. I'd say look anywhere between two to ten. Let's let's use. I was going to say two to five next, and then five okay. to ten. So you t- two to fives, and even five to ten. Look, you want to be making at least ten percent. So um, look, fifteen, sixteen percent. I know businesses that are at five million doing twenty percent plus. I know businesses are one and a half, two million doing thirty percent or twenty eight to thirty two. So you can optimize the hell out of a business and actually make a lot of money with not being big. 
And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But then I've seen plenty of $10 million businesses making 2%, 3%, 5%. Um, and it's funny, I've seen plenty of times where two $10 or $15 million businesses making 10 to 12% come together and they merge. They're now a $25 million entity, but they're only making 6% because of all the extra overhead costs, mm. all of the trying to bring everything together. And they, they're focusing on the inward rather than focusing out to the clients. So then the profitability drops. They eventually fix it, but it takes them a few years. So sometimes coming together in the merge side and the, even the acquisition side doesn't always answer. But Back to just standard EBITDA and P&L and, and profitability. Yeah, look, I, I, back in our old company, Correct Solutions, we used to have uh, a 10% growth and 10% profit were zeros. That's how I used to work. So if you grew at 11%, then in my mind, you grew 1%. So 10% every year of growth was a given and 10% profit was the, uh, the bottom line was a minimum. So they were, okay. they were kind of uh, my zeros. That's how I work. And, and obviously we did a lot better than that. We, we averaged 23% growth compound for 17, 17 or 18 years. Now it wasn't every single year, like some years it was 40%. The next sure. year might be eight and things like that. In the end, it became a sawtooth. It was exactly that. It was a, a growth year consolidation year, growth year consolidation year. But even in a consolidation year, we never once, uh, since I got involved in Correct in 2005, um, so I merged my business into there in 05 and then to, and helped took over and become the MD, um, we never had a single year of negative growth. So we grew every single year, and I think we had, uh, after I got involved, one month that was not profitable in in 17 or 18 years. So, yeah, we did very, very well. But I think uh, growing the business, growing the bottom line is the key piece. Too many people, again, as we talked earlier, revenue is vanity. It's it's about what the bottom line is and how can you optimize that through, again, as we talked, not trying to do too many different products, not trying to be everything to everyone. All of those types of things make a big difference. Um, identifying what you do and do it well and keep doing it. Uh, realistically, understanding of where your, profit, where your pricing is and where you can improve that. Um, all of those pieces help bring the bottom, increase your bottom line and professionalism and maturity, all of those pieces help. And your your ten percent um, there has sort of been your benchmark. Reminds me of the the twenty mile march um, you yep. know, concept in the scaling up framework, right? It's very probably perhaps it is that, but it's certainly it, it wasn't. Sure. But hilariously, it was so aligned. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Look at this guy. <laughs> okay, right. look. Well, one yeah. last thing, just just on the EBITDA, because there's so much more we could talk about, and, and I think you'll find that uh, Romain and I hassle you to come back on in the not distant future to cover off on a whole bunch more stuff because it's been a really yeah, good we can chat. do that. Um, thank you. Uh, just to put you on the spot. <laughs> so what else are you going to say? After this, you're like, yeah, no, no. You put me on the spot. The answer is no. Uh, but no, um, EBITDA. So we talked about that. Is that still the basis for valuation? Enterprise value um, is based off a multiple of EBITDA. Is that still what you're seeing? Still predominantly. A lot of us would love to see EBITDA go and die. It's probably more EBIT. Is probably okay. a better uh, a better understanding, but most people are still using EBITDA. Look, depreciation at the end of the day is just a it's a, it's a tax transaction. It's a balancing transaction for tax return. It's not mm-hmm. uh, it is life, and it is what it is. You've got to take it into account. But yeah, look, it's more realistically ignoring kind of buy and sell. Really, it should be. It's all about EBIT that makes a, bit, a difference. Okay. So, and really, your net profit at the end of the day, that's, that's what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, look, what's the name? EBITDA is still used. Uh, it's multiples of EBITDA. Um, the Australian New Zealand landscape is very different to the US, and that's probably for a long time within the old HDG and the evolved communities. I was kind of known as a bit of the sledgehammer um, because people would come to me to, to, or people would send people to me uh, to be told how little their business is worth because they. <laughs> hear the US multiples and 
we'll have a quick multiple discussion if you want in that mm-hmm. everyone hears the US multiples of uh, eight times, 10 times, 12 times EBITDA is how much you're going to get for your business. And yeah, that might happen in the US. It doesn't happen down here. Well, sorry, I lie. It does happen in Australia and New Zealand, but you've got to have a 150, 180, $200 million plus business turning over 12, 15, 20% bottom lines to get those types of multiples. So, but realistically, multiples in Australia for the sub $5 million business are two to three times multiple. Um, five to ten, five to fifteen type million, um, three to five. I'm not seeing much at five anymore uh, because the cost of money's gone up a bit. So deals that would have gone through last year at five are now probably four, four and a quarter times EBITDA. But it's quite okay. funny actually because if if we talk about a, a, a business, a, a good business in Australia, um, let's say again doing fifteen percent, twenty percent to the bottom line would get a four, four and a quarter multiple in Australia at the moment, that same uh, business in New Zealand would actually get a six to seven, maybe even an eight. That same business in the US would get eight to 10. So it's it's just funny and uh, how the, the markets are different for the same type of business, same revenue, same uh, profitability, just the multiples are different per country. That's so interesting because you know, New Zealand doesn't have, I, mean, I was going to say, is it because New Zealand has a scarcity of acquisition options but that doesn't apply to the uk so that wouldn't that wouldn't translate so it's just is it just a cultural expectation based on past experience self-fulfilling roi expectations all of those types of pieces cost of cost of funding so again in the us uh, and this is this is one of the biggest problems with the unfortunately this industry and up until the last couple of years People only heard about M&A and uh, people from the US and they're talking about their multiples. So people in Australia and New Zealand are expecting that they're going to get those same multiples mm-hmm. and then wonder why they're not. And then it's like, oh, wow, we've just spent 10, 15, 20, 30 years growing a business and then find it's not worth anywhere near what we think it's worth. So they're yeah. going into retirement and they don't have what, they, what they're expecting. So have, there's a number um, of us trying to solve that, not really solve it, but try, at least identify that with businesses when they're starting out. Of what are you trying to achieve? What does your exit plan look like? And do you know what the multiples or what the selling, the selling methodologies are so you're aware of what your business looks like? We also have uh, people like Greg Sharp when he was on this podcast uh, a number of months ago now uh, muddying the waters with his story about his 13 times multiple decordia and you know that yep. that, that sort of creates a, a sense of oh yeah maybe but uh, I get yep. the sense that was a very <laughs> unique situation at a unique time and um, yep. yeah was it 13 or was it eight. Uh, <laughs> Depends which day it's you public. catch him, I think. <laughs> well, it's public. That's the funny part about okay. it, actually. Yeah, it's actually some uh, books, Cord- isn't it? Cordia, Cordia is a public company. It's, yeah. uh, all of that information did come out. It wasn't was worth hoping it wasn't, but yeah, it ended up coming out. And then well, he was like, oh, shit, it's public. Ryan, I think yeah. you just don't want to let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I think that's um, <laughs> I think it's the key the key thing with Sharpie. No, nah, I don't know. Anyway, I'll leave him alone. He'll hate me now. I'm going to get in trouble. Anyway, all right. Uh, I'm hopefully Sorry, I've known Sharpie for a lot of years. So, so, yeah. <laughs> we'll be all right. We'll yeah. be all right. Uh, all right, cool, mate. Look, uh, great chat. Um, so, look, Fuzzy, uh, 360 Consulting, uh, if anyone wants to find you, uh, LinkedIn's a great, great option. Any LinkedIn, else think- website, email, all of the above, all pretty easy. It's not hard to find me. Yep, good, uh, good. But it's pretty pretty big. There's enough for me to go around. <laughs> any uh, any any uh, you know, forums or, or events that you're, you're attending or participating in in some form coming up? Uh, yeah, look, uh, helping out at the uh, Blue Chip are doing the Blue Chip Technology um, Summits there in Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Uh, there's a couple of others coming up. Uh, obviously, the Evolve side of things. There's 
Um, I'm not doing anything in the US this year that I'm aware of. But yeah, look, there's definitely plenty of stuff that I'm out and about talking at. CompTIA, SWRC Professionals, Evolve. Um, there's Yeah, there's plenty of uh, part of the tech tribe. There's, there's so many different places you can find me and grab me and ask questions. But look, happy to help and happy to keep bringing, uh, keep uh, improving the industry and uh, helping it, like either dragging it forward if it needed to be that way, but yeah, uh, helping helping the industry in general. All right, good on you, mate. All right, we'll talk again soon. Thank you again very much for your time. And I uh, said it at the outset, I'll say it again. Uh, if you like to uh, like the conversation, subscribe, like, do that kind of stuff, uh, pump those numbers. All right, thanks, mate. Talk soon. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Have a good afternoon.